It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi. Just a reminder that if you enjoy this podcast and want to help it grow and keep going, then it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave a like or a comment or a rating or a subscribe on whatever platform you use. We also have a Patreon, and if you're willing and able to give $3, $5, $10 a month, you'll get various things in return, and it will be greatly appreciated no matter how much it is and no matter how long you can do it for. Anything at all helps to keep this going and helps to keep it free. So, without further ado, here is the episode. What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns. And welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, episode 19, King Pender. As I said at the end of the last episode, King Pender is the first definitely historical king of Mercia, and he was the king to firmly establish Mercia on the stage of Anglo-Saxon history. His reign is a momentous one, typified by violence, but also by masterful politics. In this episode, we will look at the life and death of King Penda of Mercia. We really don't know anything about Penda's early life, that is, his life before he became king. The lack of Mercian sources honestly gives the impression that he kind of emerged from nowhere. Of course, that can't actually be the case, but it is not untrue to say that we really don't know anything about his early life, except that his father was apparently called Pibba. And even when he does emerge into the historical record, the uncertainty doesn't stop there. In fact, there's an awful lot of confusion about exactly when he became king, again a product of the lack of Mercian evidence. Bede indicates, although his wording is somewhat ambiguous, that Pender became king of Mercia after the death of the Northumbrian king Edwin at the Battle of Hatfield Chase in 633. The Historia Bretonum, a Welsh source, goes even later and suggests that Penda only became the sole king of Mercia in 642 after the death of his older brother and possibly co-ruler Eowa at the Battle of Mazafield. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle offers an even earlier date, in 626, when it just records that in that year Penda became king and claims that he was 50 years old and that he ruled for 30 years. So there are three dates for when Penda may have become king. 626, 633, and 642. Which of them should we go with? Well, firstly, it's important to stress that they all draw on different traditions, West Saxon, Northumbrian, and Welsh, respectively. None of them are authentically Mercian, but nevertheless, let's pass them and see what we come up with. 
The 626 entry of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle offers us very little information about how Penda became king. It gives us his age and the length of his reign, both of which are problematic. We know that his son Wulfhera was still very young at the time of his death, and it is generally doubted whether a man of 80 would still be fathering sons. One suggestion is that he was 50 when he died, which would put him in his 20s in 626. It's also been objected that 30 years from 626 would be 656, and we know that Penda died at Winward in 655. So probably he died in the 29th year of his reign, or possibly he had passed the 29th anniversary of his accession to power prior to his death in November of 655. The testimony of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle would be pretty easy to put to one side if it wasn't for its also recording an event in Penda's life between 626 and 633. In 628, it records the Battle of Cirencester between Penda's Mercians and a tribe of West Saxons called the Gawissa. The Gawissa had taken control of the Gloucestershire area from the Britons in 577. In 628, Penda successfully drove out the Gawissa and made Gloucestershire, the area that would eventually form into the sub-kingdom of the Whicher, a permanent part of Mercia's orbit. Assuming that this is a record of a genuine event, and there's no reason to think that it's not, then it would indicate that Penda was active as a Mercian warlord in the 620s. However, this leaves open the question of whether he was king at this point. Bede and the Historia Bretonum make fairly similar claims to each other. They both tie Penda's accession to the kingship with the military defeat of Northumbria, first the defeat of Edwin in 633, and second the defeat of Oswald in 642. Neither of the texts rules out Penda's having played a major role in Mercian politics before these dates. They only say that these are the points at which he attained sole control of Mercia. To Bede, prior to the defeat of Edwin, Penda was just an energetic member of the Mercian royal house, while to the author of the Historia Bretonum, he was a co-ruler with his brother Eowa. Of course, these sources cannot both be entirely correct, and which is correct depends entirely on the career of Eowa, son of Pibba. Eowa, Penda's older brother, is only recorded in two places, the entry in the Historia Bretonum for the Battle of Mesafield, and in the genealogies recorded in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle for the later Mercian kings Athelbald and Offa. Bede makes no reference to Eowa. Thus, there is not much to go on if we hope to learn if Eowa was in fact the co-ruler with Penda in 642. And once again, none of the traditions we have are Mercian. Possibly, Eowa and his co-rulership with Penda was just was just the ordinary way of doing things in Mercia prior to Penda's success. If you'll recall, Mercia originally was a fairly fractious and divided place, so it's not entirely beyond the realm of possibility that they would develop some kind of tradition of co-rulership. Another possibility is that Eowa was only elevated as a Northumbrian puppet king during the reign of Oswald as a means to try and keep Penda in line. It is notable that the Historia Bretonum does not say whose side Eowa was on at Mazafield. Something else to consider is that the Historia Bretonum was created in the 9th century, after the period of Mercian supremacy had come to an end. It's interesting that both Athelbald and Offa, kings who both spent a great deal of their time harrying the Welsh, 
both claimed descent from Pippa via Eowa, rather than from Penda. Possibly the Bretonum accords importance to Eowa in light of the later success of men who claimed him and not Penda as an ancestor. Since Bede, a source who was closer in both time and location to Marsafield, makes no mention of a notable Mercian named Eowa, then it is possible that his importance, if he was there at all, was inflated by later writers, with an eye to subsequent events in Mercian history. This is just a theory though, and it is entirely possible that some kind of co-rulership existed in Mercia, or that Oswald had established Eowa as a way to try and keep Penda in line. But, as I said, the question of Eowa is an important one, and it's one that we must deal with if we want to try and figure out when Penda became king. Regardless, though, of the question of Eowa, something that both Bede and the author of the Bretonum agree on is that Penda was active for a time as a powerful member of the Mercian dynasty. Given what was said last episode about the fragmented makeup of early Mercia, it is entirely plausible that Penda operated for a while as a warlord seeking to subordinate other warlords. It may have been in that spirit that he conquered Sirencester in 628, a victory that must have garnered him much praise and power in an age when raiding and plunder was a key component of alliance building. Despite the claim in the Chronicle that he had become king in 626, and it is quite clear what this meant to those writing the Chronicle in the 9th century, we don't actually know what Penda, quote, becoming king would actually look like, or mean to an Anglo-Saxon warlord in the early 7th century. In the end, we cannot confidently say which date for the start of his reign is most accurate, but we can say that Penda was almost certainly active in international politics in the 620s, and that the victories he won in those early years lay the foundations for all his future successes. Once he became king, whenever that was, we can divide Penda's time into three parts. His rise, his cold war with Oswald, and his supremacy. His rise goes from his accession in approximately 626 to the victory over Edwin in 633. His cold war with Oswald lasted from 633 to 642, and finally his supremacy lasted from 642 to his death in 655. We've already covered most of what can be said about his rise. The one detail to mention is that at some point between 626 and 633, he allied himself with Cadwathlon of Gwynedd, a Welsh king who hoped to undermine Northumbria for her advances into territory he regarded as his own. Penda was also worried about the rising star of Northumbria under Edwin, so an alliance between him and Cadwathlon makes a certain amount of strategic sense. They probably also saw that with the death of Radwald of East Anglia in 624, Edwin lost an extremely powerful ally, and his position was now vulnerable. Penda seems to have enjoyed quite a close relationship with the Britons, something that can be surprising if we remember the animosity that existed between the Saxons and the Britons on account of the perceived conquests of the Germanic settlers. But Penda saw no issue in allying himself with Cadwathlon, or indeed in allying himself later with the rulers of Powys. It's been suggested that Penda may have had Britonic ancestry. In the Durham Liber Vitae from the 9th century, the name Penda is recorded as that of a member of the community's brotherhood. This is the only other instance from Anglo-Saxon England of the name Penda, and in this book, the name is listed as being Welsh. As mentioned in the last episode, 
there is copious evidence for close relationship between the Britons and the Anglians in early Mercia. So it would not necessarily be all that surprising if Penda was the product of an intermarriage between a Briton and an Anglian. It would be remiss of me to point out, though, that there are a couple of continental German names that are similar to Penda's, but whether they are related is uncertain. The main point is, Penda allied himself frequently with the Britons in an attempt to undermine Northumbria, and he did that regardless of whether or not he had any British blood. The first time that he did this culminated in the Battle of Hatfield Chase, at which Edwin was killed. The year after this, so 634, Cadwathlon, who had continued to ravage Northumbria, was himself killed by Oswald. Penda, however, had seemingly returned to Mercia. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. This brings us to the period of Pender's Cold War with Oswald. My use of that term may seem a bit odd, since there was frequent violence on both sides, but I felt that it was appropriate given the clear strategies that came into play by which both kings struggled for influence over their neighbours as a means to pen the other in. The chief objects of both their interests were East Anglia and Wessex. Pender, probably acutely aware of East Anglia's importance as a support base for Edwin, took the opportunity in 635 to invade and kill both the current king, Edgerich, and his predecessor, Seabert, who had abdicated to enter a monastery at Bury St Edmunds, but who had been called out of the cloister to lead the army against the invading Mercians. In response, Oswald threw his support behind Anna, a cousin of Edgerich and Seabert, who at some point between 635 and 642 rose to become the king of East Anglia and served as a check against Pender's ambitions in the kingdom. In Wessex too, there is clear evidence for a rivalry between Pender and Oswald. Between 635 and 640, Oswald stood as sponsor for King Kinegils at his baptism. Pender countered by marrying his sister to Kinegils' son, Kenwal. It seems that Oswald realised his support base south of the Humber was quite weak, and in response he took to launching raids into Mercia, and it may have been at this point that he established Eowa as a puppet king of Mercia. In response, Pender allied himself again with Welsh rulers, this time with the kings of both Gwynedd and Powys, and it was with these allies that he met Oswald in battle at Mezafield in 642. If you'll recall, this battle occurred while Oswald was raiding in Mercia, probably near Old Oswestry in Shropshire. Oswald was killed, and thus his more aggressive stance towards Mercia backfired quite dramatically. While the claim in the Bretonum that Penda only became sole king of Mercia in 642 is questionable, it is certainly true that Oswald's death in that year left him without a clear equal, who could keep his ambitions in check. Thus began the period of his supremacy. 
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. If you'll think back to episode six, I spoke there briefly about the idea of the Brett Walder. It's a term derived from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, but based on Bede's list of kings who held overlordship of all other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Pender was not included on this list. In fact, no Mercian kings are included, a fact which must show Bede's bias against Mercia, since certainly Pender, and we shall see in future episodes, other Mercian kings occupied positions of clear dominance at various points in their rule. With Oswald dead, Wessex and East Anglia were finally at Pender's mercy. At some point in the 640s, probably not long after Mesafield, Kenwile, the West Saxon prince who had married Pender's sister, took the opportunity of his becoming king to repudiate the marriage. In response, Pender invaded Wessex and drove Kenwile into exile. This exile lasted for about three years and Kenwal returned to the throne in approximately 648, having converted to Christianity at the court of King Anna of East Anglia, and possibly with the military backing of East Anglia. This possible support for Kenwal seems to have made Anna into even more of a target for Pender than he already was. In 649 or 650, Pender invaded East Anglia and successfully drove Anna into exile. Several years later, in 654 or 655, he again invaded, and this time he killed Anna, leaving the throne vacant for his brother Athelhera, a Mercian puppet. He also did not allow the Northumbrians any peace. Bede reports that just before the death of Aidan in 651, Pender launched a major raid into Northumbria, managing to ravage as far north as Bamborough. Bede also relates that a similar raid occurred sometime after Aidan's death, which this time reached Lindisfarne. Curiously, though, no battles are recorded at this time, possibly indicating that Oswiu, still attempting to heal the kingdom which had split following Oswald's death, felt too weak to resist Pender. It shouldn't be thought, though, that Pender's only political tool was violence. In addition to violently subduing potential enemies, Pender also pursued a clear policy of establishing Mercian client kingdoms as buffers between his kingdom's heartlands and potential enemies. He seems to have done this by imposing single rulers over various tribal groups to keep them in line and to defend against potential invaders. In 653, he established his son and heir, Peada, as king of the Middle Angles, a new sub-kingdom situated between Mercia and East Anglia. At around the same time, he also set up another son, Merowal, as king of the Magosata, one of the groups mentioned in the tribal Hydage who lived in modern-day Herefordshire, possibly to serve as a buffer against the Welsh or West Saxons. In addition to forming buffer zones, Pender also seems to have sought to cultivate marriage alliances, especially with Northumbria. His daughter, Kinabur, married Oswiu's troublesome son, Ulfrith. 
Vice versa, Oswiu's daughter, Alflad, married Penda's son, Peoda. It has been suggested, though, that this latter marriage in particular, which required Peoda to convert to Christianity, was something of a political manoeuvre by Oswiu, in that it drew Peoda into his sphere of influence. Regardless, Penda did not stop it, although subsequent events may indicate that he should have. This question of Christianity gets us into one of the most famous parts of Penda's life, that being his continued adherence to Anglo-Saxon paganism. He has a bit of a reputation as England's last pagan king. This, combined with his role in the death of Oswald, who subsequently became a saint, has contributed to an air of religious militancy that still hangs around Penda. This is nicely encapsulated in the BBC televised play Penda's Fen, where King Penda serves as a symbol of the ancient pagan essence of England, which still lingers in the English countryside. However, there is no reason to view Penda as a militant pagan taking a stand against the spread of Christianity in England. In fact, despite never adopting Christianity himself, Bede acknowledges that he did not persecute Christians or outlaw the preaching of Christianity. When Peoda converted and allowed missionaries into Middle Anglia, Penda did nothing to stop it, and just as much as he warred with some Christian rulers, he also allied himself with some others. In fact, given that the majority of rulers in England at this time were now Christians, it would be very difficult for him not to. Possibly, Penda was sincerely committed to his old beliefs. Perhaps he believed that the gods had helped him reach the heights he did. Or perhaps he realised that the conversion to Christianity would require him to be sponsored by another king at baptism, thus forcing him to submit to another, and this was something that he would not accept. Whatever the reason, Pender remained pagan, and while this attracted the calumny of writers like Bede, it does not seem to have seriously undermined his ability to engage in diplomacy with other kings as well as war. But this drive for domination would eventually undo Pender. In 655, he again undertook a raid into Northumbria. This time, he brought with him a powerful army comprising Mercians, Welshmen and East Anglians, fully 30 warlords in total, larger than a simple raiding force, probably with the intention of forcing Oswiu to submit to him. In 651, Oswiu had killed Oswina, the ruler of Dera, and thus reunited both Northumbrian kingdoms under his rule. Penda may have intended to humiliate Oswiu, and thus undermine any plans he had to re-establish Northumbrian dominance. At first, this was successful. Oswiu gave a large quantity of gold to Penda as a sign of his submission. Pleased, the Mercians turned around and began marching south again. Some of their allies broke away to take a more direct route home. It was after his force had shrunk that Oswiu and his army caught up with Penda along the banks of the river Winward, near Leeds. It was here that he attacked the Mercians. Probably the Northumbrians were still outnumbered, but B tells us that the battle took place in autumn and in heavy rains which caused the already swollen Winward to flood, and it was in these muddy waters that many of the soldiers drowned, indeed more drowned than died in the battle. Penda was decapitated. With his death, the supremacy which Penda had created through military genius and sheer force of will crumbled. It did not mark the end of Mercian supremacy. Indeed, his second oldest son would go a long way to restoring what his father had created. But that was only after a time of submission to Northumbria. After Penda's death, 
Oswiu established personal rule over the north of Northumbria, and set up Peoda as a puppet king in the south. This did not last long though, and Peoda was quickly betrayed by his own wife, and murdered at Easter in 656. After this, Oswiu assumed direct control of all Mercia, and sought to subdue it by installing Northumbrian governors. In 658 though, a group of Mercian nobles, named Imin, Eafa and Eadbert, rallied troops and revolted. Oswiu was unable to put down the rebellion, possibly due to troubles with the Picts, and upon its success, the three men revealed that they had been secretly harbouring Penda's second oldest son, Wolfhera, who then assumed the kingship of Mercia. But that is a topic for the next episode. For now, let's look back on the life of Penda. He was a remarkable king, and it is truly a shame that so little survives about him, even more so that no Mercian accounts survive. For what we have, though, we can tell that his dominance was marked not only by military success, but also by personal charisma and political savviness. From the fragmented seeds of Mercia, he managed to create something, if not fully unified, at least more unified, and with a stronger sense of its own identity. It also cannot be understated how momentous it was that Mercia was now established as a major political player in its own right. Without Penda, Anglo-Saxon history would have progressed pretty differently, and probably modern England would look quite different too, especially in terms of its relations with the Welsh. That, however, will all be made clearer as we continue to follow the fortunes of this strange little kingdom called Mercia. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Once again, if you have, I'd like to ask that you like, subscribe, comment, follow, whatever it is you do on whatever platform you prefer. And if you're able to, please support our Patreon. Anything helps. I've also been asked to briefly explain what it is I say at the beginning of each episode. So I will do that here. What I say is what, H-W-W. Ash, which is like the funny little A-E stuck together letter, and T. I went with it because it's actually the first word of Beowulf, and roughly it translates as something like low, listen up, or pay attention. I seem to remember also that there is a translation of Beowulf from the Victorian period which translates it as A-up. Basically, I went with it because it seems appropriate to the audio format of a podcast, So I hope, having explained it a bit, I hope you will now understand what I'm saying. But that's all for now. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and this has been the Anglo-Saxon England Podcast. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.